This is SoundWise, a new music box podcast sharing insights and stories from people who dedicate their lives to new music. Brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. You are listening to Fanfare on Amazing Grace by Adolphus Hailstorm, performed by the Virginia Symphony, conducted by Joanne Folletta on Noxos American Classics. A wind band arrangement of Hailstork's fanfare was performed at the inauguration of President Joe Biden. I'm Frank J. O'Terry, and my guest on this episode of Sound Lives is composer Adolphus Hailstork, who recently celebrated his 80th birthday and talks to us about his love for spirituals and other lyrical melodies, his growing up singing in choirs, and how his music has reflected the tribulations as well as triumphs of African-Americans in this country. This has been a really important year for you, a milestone year. You had two really prominent performances that come to my mind. One is that performance of that really deeply moving Tulsa 1921 work that was created in memoriam for the the centenary of the horrible events of Tulsa 100 years ago. And the other is that your music was part of the inauguration of our president of the United States, which is a big deal. And it means those two things, they were both very public things, means this music had the potential and hopefully did in fact reach a very broad audience, which I know is an important goal for you in your music. Yeah, I, I never wanted to be one of those composers who had, you know, uh, up in the loft with 12 fellow composers. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing, that never was me. You know? <laughs> you know? A lot of people say, oh, I don't like new music. I don't want to hear this new music. They need to hear it in order to know whether they like yeah. it or not. And new music yeah. is an extremely varied realm. Composers are writing all kinds of pieces. But unless you hear the music, you can't know if it's something that speaks to you. Yes. It used to be a lot more difficult for uh, lyrical types like me to have a place just to be recognized, to be heard. I'm talking about um, probably long before your time, back when I was in school in the 60s. And it's like the gates were barred and only uh, the... um, Bulezites, or you might say, <laughs> or, you know, you know, those people who love to count to 12 were admitted. And, and I, I'm, I'm only rediscovering some of my own teachers and uh, how they were, they were blocked. And of course, I mean, I'm talking about Flagello, Giannini. We know how uh, Barbara was trashed. And now, God, he's beloved. It was a tough time back then. Yeah. A lot of people still don't know what to make of this term, new music. Obviously, new music is music that's created anew by somebody who's alive creating it now. And your music is undeniably contemporary and of our time, often relating to extremely topical issues that people of right now could totally relate to. And yet, indeed, it exists somewhere outside of this rubric of new music. For some people, new music is anything that was written or is being written today. Uh, Contemporary music might be a better term. It dawned on me years after I was 
I stopped wrestling with it was um, they were trying to reinvent music. If we're going to, into the invention of the Baroque era, and okay, we have Jacopo Perry and have a, a new form called opera and stuff like that, and all the the sounds have to be absolutely uniquely different, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, in my study of history, I don't know when they ever solely, totally left being involved with human beings who are listening to it as, I mean, we almost killed music back uh, 50, 60 years ago as a group experience in a large concert hall. In small venues where, you know, a few people can gather together in the name of, of counting the 12, uh, that's that's fine. Uh, it's, I don't know, I'm not trying to be controversial, <laughs> but you raised this, <laughs> you know, it's, but, but you know, it's just that, I just remember how much I felt so out of it and so much attacked. And I, I think I was trying to say that, you know, I only recently discovered the music of, of Flagello and Giannini. And I listened to them and, and I recognized that they had a bigger impact on me than I, I, I thought. And, and, I, and, I, and how they represented an old guard versus vanguard, I guess. But stuff is doggone good. They were blocked from, you know, a wide acceptance and um, and wide performances. We had Morton Sabotnik and uh, and John Cage and uh, numerous others uh, leading the way, which turned out to, to me to be an arid field. There's this whole realm, and there's an institutionalization of new music, of contemporary music, and concerts that have only contemporary works. But then the sphere that your music exists in to a great extent are the more standard performance practices of you know, symphony orchestras, string yeah. quartets, who are mostly devoted to playing music by very old, long dead composers, mostly from Europe, not from here. But there's a simpatico sound world that allows your music to fit in with that music in a way that a lot of other so-called contemporary music might not necessarily fit in and might be jarring to listeners who are going to hear those other pieces. I once read a, an essay about the two threads, a, a modernist thread and a populist thread that entered into the 20th century you could pick one or the other. I'm, I'm more on the populist side, uh, tonal, lyrical. I am interested in a continuation rather than a breaking away from. I think we need to establish right from the beginning how I came up. I am a chorister. I sang in choirs. I'm a singer. Okay. That almost by definition would make me a conservative because choral music is so rich and it's also limited in terms of what choirs can do versus what instrumentalists can do. And I think most of the people of my generation who came along uh, were pianists or players on other instruments. And my ear leaned towards the choral, the uh, conservative, the, the ceremonial, you might say, this whole thing of plink, plank, and plunk, and count to 12. I couldn't, I couldn't get into it. I never wrote choral, choral music in 12-tone technique. I never conducted a choir in a 12-tone piece. 
because mostly choirs are mostly filled with amateur singers. Now, if I were commissioned by one of the major choirs of New York City or something like that, then I might say, hmm, maybe this is my chance to experiment with an avant-garde approach to writing for choir. But it, it doesn't fascinate me that much. I'm glad you brought up the choral thing, because one of the things that I find so compelling about your music is how idiomatic it is for voices and for inner voices. Mm. And I find it interesting that you began as a little kid singing, you know, the high parts and grew up in chorus with your voice getting lower, eventually being a bass. So you basically got through all the parts. So you, you kind of have an insider <laughs> knowledge of, of each of right, the voices. Right, 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 right. When, when, I, when I conduct requires, I always sang all the parts. And I tell, so I tell the sopranos, it goes like this, sopranos, and I sing it in their register. <laughs> their eyes would bulge out. I love the medium. And it's, it is my favorite medium. Even yesterday, I was talking to a group of composition students at Brevard and said, if you get a chance to sing in a choir so you can hear, be inside the music, hear the counterpoint moving around, hear the chords being formed. That was crucial to how I uh, formed my own aesthetic issue. Let's listen to some of Adolphus Hale Stork's choral music. This is from Whitman's Journey featuring the Virginia Symphony Orchestra and Chorus, conducted by Joanne Folletta, again on Noxos American Classics. Now, in terms of being inside the music, you were a singer, but you also played violin, you played piano, you played organ. You know, yeah. you had this background in all these very different physical ways of making music. And mm -hmm. obviously, as a composer, you, know, you write a ton of really fantastic music for orchestra. You have to write for all these instruments, you, many of which I don't think you do have such an intimate physical yeah. knowledge of playing. So how do you wind up getting that fluency and being as idiomatic in sonorities you're less familiar with making yourself? Well, I played in the high school orchestra for years and uh, I started out in the junior high school orchestra. And then you study scores. I mean, you study scores and study and study and listen and listen. I love the sound. I love the sound of all the instruments. I often have gotten the, the question from people who aren't in, aren't in the field. How do, how do you hear all these instruments? I said, you memorize the sound of all the instruments. You, you know what a flute sounds like, an oboe sounds like, a clarinet sounds like, a trumpet sounds like. They hadn't perhaps consciously thought of it themselves. But if I said, imagine hearing the sound of a flute right now, they could do it. I'm, I'm pretty sure they could do it. It's just that some of us dive into it much more deeply. Of course, the tricky part is, yeah, you can have those sounds in your head, but also having the ranges and knowing what's comfortable for a player, what's idiomatic. There are certain challenges yeah, yeah. 
like the harp. I, I know you jokingly said in an interview I heard recently, you know, you wanted to play the harp and they assigned you the violin. And the harp is a nightmare instrument. It's so beautiful, but it could play all these things, but only based on how the pedals work with certain combinations, certain uh -huh. things are not possible. Right, and you only use four fingers. And I didn't know that until I wrote a piece called Epitaph for a Man Who Dreamed. There's a pretty nice harp part in there. And, and the first harpist who played it for me uh, always wrote me elaborate notation telling me this can't be done. And you were writing for piano, you're not really writing for harp. And I learned a lot from those wonderful musicians who uh, took the time to uh, let me know that <laughs> Your heart writing sucks, man. We got we got to teach you how to do this. And of course, when I started teaching orchestration in college, so as a college prof, I, I I got much more familiar. And one very good friend got me a book. I forgot the name of the um, author on scoring for harp, and uh, I've studied that. And I love the instrument, and I've I use it in Tulsa that you mentioned. You have to learn these things. And as for learning the what the other instruments could do and how they pair well with other instruments. It's a learning experience, partly from books, but mostly from listening. I mean, one of my first funny experiences was um, I wrote a short orchestra piece. It was my first break, breakout piece called Celebration. I wrote it in 74 and to get ready for the bicentennial. I had in there orchestra chimes, orchestra bells, um, tubular bells and uh they were supposed to be you know bells ringing everybody's happy <laughs> when i first heard it live the bells were totally smothered i mean i, I said what has happened was well, the difference is that's when i started realizing that a recording is different from a performance and so orchestra directors started moving the bells up to the front just behind the first row of uh, first violins so they could be heard but that's what you learn in experience. That did not work that way. If you want to use those things, you got to uh, think of Berlioz and the, the March to the Gallows, I mean, or, or the final movement, um, the, where you hear the, the bell so solidly. You can't cover them that heavily. And the same thing, you can't cover harp. And you got to, harp makes a great, oh, I could talk about orchestration, well, but harp makes a great um, melding together, good kind of goo. And for instance, the Tulsa piece, I knew I was going to have a small body of strings. Um, Liz player told me, you're going to have this many strings. It was actually supposed to be less than what she, she managed to get finally. I said, okay, but I want a little bit more goo in the sound. And so, hey, she said there's going to be a harpist. And the harpist just kind of blends everything together. So I used harp. I threw harp in there and uh, it worked out nicely. Wonderful. Of, of course, fewer string players than normal because they had to be physically distanced because of- Yeah, yeah, well, that, well, that was part of it. It was really mainly budget. Yeah, <laughs> that's, the, that's always the other- She got the, she got the other, relief, yeah, right. In terms of this experience and listening and background, this strikes back to what you were saying at the onset of the conversation of not wanting to reinvent music, but rather to be continuing within a tradition being yeah. part of that tradition, certainly, you know, you had some very key mentors. You, know, you mentioned Janini. You also studied with, with David Diamond, with Mark Fax, yes. an all yes. too little known composer whose, I, whose music oh. I hope gets rediscovered. 
uh-huh. at, at some point, and with Nadia Boulanger. Oh wow, that's that's a, that's a lot of people. Uh, Mark Fax, I I went when I when I reported to Howard my first semester, I begged him immediately to start teaching me comp because I had never had any comp lessons, but I had been sneaking books out of the library and studying orchestration and reading scores. They had scores in the uh, public library also. And he said, no, you have to wait until you get to your junior year after you have two years of theory. That broke my heart at the time, but I understand where he's coming from because when I wound up teaching comp to undergrads without any kind of theory background, it was excruciating. They, they didn't know what they were doing. And <laughs> I'm going to be a composer. Well, sorry, it helps to know how to, you know, if you, if, you know, it's like if you're going to build buildings, you never knew what a girder was. That was my experience with, with, with Mark. He's a sweet man. And, and then the, uh, Giannini, our cigar smoking teacher of counterpoint at MSM, Manhattan School of Music, and <laughs> rough, gruff, easygoing at the same time. But he, he said something that's, that stuck in my mind for a long, long, long time ever. We're supposed to write a double fugue. He said, don't think you can take two separate themes and put them together and you're gonna have your double fugue. He said, uh, you're not ready for that yet. <laughs> you know? No, you can't, you can't pre-create your themes and then see if you can make them a useful piece out of them. And Flagello, um, terrific. I mean, there are whole recordings of Flagello's music out now that I didn't know about when I was in school. I think that must be kind of per usual uh, in the educational world. The students don't know, hey, that you've actually accomplished something. But I had him for orchestration. He was a, a flamboyant orchestra teacher and he, he's a fantastic musician. I mean, geez, great, great pianist, wonderful conductor and uh, a keen ability to talk about uh, orchestration. Now, Boulanger is another ballgame altogether. I studied with Boulanger one summer before I went to Manhattan School of Music. But had I not gone to Boulanger's Academy in France, I may never have gotten to the Manhattan School of Music because I just had the good fortune. There was a person who taught piano at Manhattan School of Music at the time, Mary Weaver, who after a short little concert Madame Mademoiselle organized, and I had a piece on there. Uh, she walked up to me, this uh, teacher, Mary, and said, well, what are your plans for grad school? And uh, as un unbelievable as it may seem, I had never heard the words grad school. Huh. I had no idea what she was talking about. I said, I have no plans. Here I am with, with a bachelor's degree in music composition, not teaching, by the way, and I had no prospects whatsoever. And she said, well, I may be able to get you in the Manhattan School of Music. And she did. Uh, so I've established a scholarship in her name, uh, our shared names, recently when I realized the magnitude of that moment and the impact it had on my life. Uh, because I met three glorious years in New York City, studying at what has turned out to be one of the great music schools in the country. That was pure, oh, I don't know, serendipity, is that what you call it? But anyway, that's what happened. I want to go back in time a little bit because you mentioned never hearing the, the words grad school. I was rather perplexed by a, a comment you made to the composer William Banfield in his really important book, Musical Landscapes in Color, which is sadly 
out of print now, going back to your time at Howard, that the students were discouraged from performing or learning about gospel music, oh, well, which I thought was really yeah. bizarre. Well, you, it's it's got to do with, with the perspective of time. I was on the cusp. The end of, to me, as I see it, the end of the golden age for black universities uh, at Howard, before desegregation and the civil rights movement opened up other schools to blacks more easily. At Howard at that time, they were very strict in the classics. I'm actually very thankful for that. We used French solfege books to learn, work on our sight reading. We studied Chadwick's Harmony book. It was a strict Eurocentric classical tradition. Any kid coming out of the urban area who, and sat in, the, in one of those, in the, one of the practice rooms playing gospel was chastised. You just don't do that. You are going, you are here to learn the classics and master the classics, not to play what you're playing in church on, on the weekends. So that was a great experience. I was not that interested in, you know, gospel. I knew nothing about it. I didn't grow up in that tradition. But some kids did, and that's what they wanted to do. And so right then, you could see the tide turning. Now, we know that later on in the 60s, after I had left, I left in 63, I think about 66 to 68, somewhere around there, there was a great uprising on that campus and occupation of the executive buildings and all that as the students tried to force, and they did, really influenced the use of um, more Black materials, more Afrocentric approach to teaching at the university. So that was a very turbulent time. It was a, probably a very valuable time for the university to reconsider uh, its involvement in the teaching of the young people they were getting. It might be that a different type of person was going into the back schools at that time, because as I said, the white schools and academies started opening up their doors for um, black students um, more often. Well, what's amazing to me about, you know, this sort of suppression of gospel music at mm -hmm. Howard is gospel music is a tradition that has its roots in the spirituals. And those spirituals have been a deep, deep influence on your music and have yeah. been a key element mm -hmm. in your music. In a way, I would dare say that the two great traditions that your music has somehow been a response to and an evolution of and a, and a melding together is the Western classical music tradition of symphonic music and these spirituals. Well, I happen to think the spirituals are the foundation of our music. It doesn't automatically follow that gospel came out of the spirituals. Gospel really more, I think, came out of the blues. Now, and did the blues come out of the spirituals? All of that uh, has been studied by people more learned than I am on the issue. But I like to go back to the genuine spirituals. Now, when I was at Howard, the spirituals were, even in those days, and we're down to the 50s, late 50s, passed on by word of mouth. I mean, you sat in the choir, 
It was a great choir at that time. You sat in the choir and you learned the spirituals from the people who uh, were sitting around you who had been in the choir already three years or four years. So that plantation approach to passing on the spirituals was still alive at Howard. I'm sure they would resent my saying that plantation, but I'm talking about just the technique of passing them from voice to voice. You know, even Ray Charles got in trouble bringing you know, blues-inflected uh, music into the church, which evolved as, as one of the things that involved into gospel. And Thomas Dorsey, all of that. Gospel is like a cousin to the spirituals, but it's not a descendant of the spirituals. In terms of my own work, since I do worship the spirituals and think they're gorgeous melodies and they're very useful, and also I believe in the, the old statement by Dvorak that an American art music could be based on using African-American materials or Indian materials also. I decided that Dvorak was right, and that's what I wanted to do, and, um, and I've tried to work them in. One wonderful use of them, I'm thinking of the spiritual suite that you wrote for organ. To my ears, it really establishes these melodies as being parallel to Lutheran chorales, which inspired Dehuda yeah, yeah. and Bach and Rager and all yeah. these composers. They're on yeah. the same level, and you could do just as much with them. Yeah, I think the spiritual are some great stuff, and I like to use them, and I extract motives from them, et cetera, et cetera, just like uh, they used to do in Europe from their folk songs. One of the most amazing transformations of spirituals in your music is, I think, the music you've done for string quartet using spirituals. I mean, obviously, mm. I mean, what comes to mind is string quartet number two, which is a set of variations on Swing Low Sweet Chariot, which is one of the most famous of all of the spirituals. And you worked it into an entire composition that takes it into all other places that normally wouldn't go. <laughs> that's the idea, right? <laughs> I love that piece. I, I, I really, that's a piece I, I really like a lot. Since I came up as a lyrical guy, and every lyrical moment has motives, has ideas in them that can be worked over. And because I'm classically trained, I know how to take a motive and turn into a lot of different ideas. I appreciate that training and that ability to do that. Something that's even more deeply moving to me, and it's it's what you did with We Shall Overcome in the arrangement for String Quartet, where it begins as all of the uh, players are in unison, and then it becomes contrapuntal. It yeah. It's based on the technique of a Bach chorale prelude. I was just thinking about We Shall Overcome. I think We Shall Overcome is a great classical melody. I mean, that is a melody worthy of any stalwart melody you would find in a grand European moment. I was, I'm an organ player, as you know. And so I wanted to create a, a, a organ prelude. I decided to use the trio technique and put this chorale prelude idea underneath it and then bring in the broader lines of We Shall Overcome. And because of the stateliness of that melody, it worked perfectly. I, I really like how that turned out. Let's listen to some of Adolphus Hale Stork's arrangement of We Shall Overcome from Three Spirituals for String Quartet, performed by the Ambrosia Quartet 
on their CD of string quartets of Adolphus Hale Stork's Swing Low Sweet Chariot, released on Albany Records. Of course, the other element of We Shall Overcome is a melody that everybody knows yeah. because yeah. it was the de facto anthem of the civil rights movement and right. so closely associated with Dr. Martin Luther King and having everybody sing We Shall Overcome together in sit-ins and making people aware through this melody. So when you use it, it has all these other associations attached to it because you can't really divorce the associations from that melody, I think. I like the idea that the nobility of the cause in the 60s, in the civil rights era, which is now being re resurrected, you might say, on behalf of voting rights all over again, et cetera. Somebody's got to catalog that. Somebody's or honor that. And as a creature who was coming of age during the civil rights era, who, however, never grew up with the problems that they have ever had. I just thought, okay, what can I do? Do I have to do anything? I decided that, yeah, I wanted to do something. And so in, in my music, I try to capture or reflect the tribulations and the occasional triumphs of African-American in this country. And so um, if I can apply my skills to reflecting this, using the melodies, and even though if I use them in a Germanic Lutheran <laughs> text, texture, why not? I mean, if we try to define nobility, you know, one thing that bothers me a lot in, in some of that new music we started talking about early on, the loss of terms like nobility, grace, tenderness, so many things got lost uh, just so we could uh, count to 12 and throw notes all over the place that may have had order. They had lots of order, but not much meaning. Now, for me, coming up as a chorister, when you made a musical gesture, you were making meaning. The meaning of the anthem you were singing, the meaning of the hymn you were singing at the cathedral, music is supposed to have meaning to me. I have used crazy things, you know, clusters and 12-tone and every single technique in the, that was invented in the 20th century I have used. But I've always tried to use them in a way that reflected meaningfulness. For instance, there's a band piece called American Guernica 
now people don't think much about band music that much, but, but you know, I think it's all, all marches and gallops and whatever. But I used very extreme techniques for the, for the time. I wrote this in the 80s. I'd always learned a lot of the different tech, avant-garde techniques. And to me, blowing up a church in Birmingham, Alabama, called for using some really extreme, loud, ugly sounds, but led us to honor the four little girls who were killed. So I think maybe that's the thing that bothered me the most when I was in school and they were teaching us all this and insisted on gun to the head modernity and all of that is that they never spoke about the meaningfulness of the sounds and, and where you wanted to take them. That's why I am who I am. I'm glad that you brought that up. First off, you know, mentioning a wind band piece, I wanted to bring it back for a second to Martin Luther King and your comment originally about not knowing what graduate school was, but upon his assassination and seeing all these references to Dr. King yeah, made yeah. you decide you wanted to get a doctorate yeah. and be a doctor and you got a doctorate studying with H. Owen Reed, who was a big wind band composer. So oh, well, it yeah, all connects yeah. to like, everything connects to everything else here. I love that. Yeah, well, you know what? This is gonna sound crazy. I used to go to band rehearsal, so I never played a band instrument. I just love the sound of it. I think it ties in with two things. One is organ uh, and the pipe organ with the majesty that it's able to summon and also choir, the sustained sounds of, of the choir. and. I love brass, and I've written for band more more than just American Guernica, and uh, it, it's it's a very powerful medium. I didn't want to devote my whole career to it because I love strings too, <laughs> but uh, I honor it. I think I, I happen to think that bands can be a magnificent uh, uh, way of expressing yourself, and a great opportunity. They're a lot more open to doing works by living composers yes. than most yes. orchestras are. Yes, they are. I, I, you know, salute all the band directors of America uh, for uh, their constant looking for uh, new pieces and that they took that piece, Guernica, which is, wow, it's on everybody's conducting list. And I don't mean to say that in a hubristic way, I'm, but I mean, a guy just wrote his doctoral thesis on American Guernica. I nice. hold a whole doctoral thesis, a magnificent doctoral thesis. You sent me a, a rough copy of it. And it just goes to show you that band directors will look for what they consider high quality music and program it. They don't flinch from it the way many orchestra directors have to because you know, you've got the board breathing down your neck and you've got the artistic administrator saying no, no, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you gotta get the, you know, the butts in the seats and uh, get on. where band directors don't have quite that problem of the audience with its fixed agenda of what you should be playing. Well, it's so interesting to me in terms of your trajectory with the orchestra, because you have had successes with big pieces. If a composer gets lucky and gets played, a living composer and gets their music played by an orchestra, they maybe get to write a 10 minute work that they put at the beginning of the program so that everybody comes in late and doesn't hear it, right? Maybe you're lucky and you have a good friend who is a soloist and then you could write a concerto for that person. But to write a symphony 
a multi-movement long orchestra piece that's typically the second half of the program, that almost is never given to a living composer because they're afraid people are gonna leave it intermission, right? You know, you've now written four symphonies and to my ears at the heart of your work as a composer, they're, they're monumental pieces, they're important pieces. Thankfully, three of the four of them are on commercially released recordings thanks to Noxo, so they're out there and they've had their champions, but it's rare that that happens. The fourth hasn't been premiered yet, it's coming up in February, but the second and third, they don't get performances. They had the premieres. Uh, the second got another performance at Wayne State University about four years ago, four or five years ago. It's very rare. Where I, I do seem to have better luck was with um, a field that a lot of composers from my generation didn't get into that much, but I took in like mother's milk when I was a kid, and that is orchestra and chorus. I've written a lot of pieces for chorus and orchestra. It's a lot of work to do because you got to produce the vocal score and then you got to produce the orchestra score and then you got to do the parts, et cetera, et cetera. And since I love writing for choir and I'm good at it, I kind of hopefully I'd say humbly, and I can handle an orchestra decently too. Putting both together has been uh, a strong point in my career. I'm hoping the fourth symphony might have uh, more legs in the second and third. The first is a short little Haydn-esque symphony, and that has gotten a lot of play because it's short, it's got a small orchestra, and it's got some cute tunes. You know, <laughs> so uh, you can't lose kind of with, with that combination. Yeah, well, one is one is wonderful, but I also love three. I hope more oh, more wow. orchestras take it up. That's a great piece. You're the first person that ever said that. <laughs> no, really. I never hear that one mentioned. Here's the beginning of the second movement of Adolphus Hellstork's Third Symphony, performed by the Grand Rapids Symphony, conducted by David Lockington on Noxos American Classics. I thought it was a very powerful, very moving piece that goes through so many different emotions and so many different terrains. And, and you know, we're talking about pieces having these larger meanings and connecting to things. You know, symphonies are abstract, but mm. you hear them and you form your own narratives. It's interesting you said that because the fourth, I direct the narrative. Fourth symphony, 
has um, four movements. The first one is still holding on. The whole symphony is called Survive. I was reacting to all the black men who were getting shot in the back, 16 bullets here, seven bullets there, and all that. And so I just named the whole thing Survive. The first movement was commissioned by the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and I called it Still Holding On. And I quoted the spiritual, um, hold on, hold on, keep your hand on the plow, hold on. And the second movement is I had the light in the mood, and I called it uh, Sometimes with a Lighter Touch. And then the third movement is while still remembering the Emmanuel Nine and many others. Now that's a trick title because you have to know what, what Hale Stark was talking about. If you don't know the Emmanuel Nine, then you don't know American current American history or recent American history. And the fourth movement is called, and it's so appropriate for the day, it blows my mind, still crossing that bridge. Still crossing that bridge. <laughs> so I could actually dedicate that movement to John Lewis. And then uh, there's a coda. There's a nice fat coda that um, calls for a time for healing. Hmm. So I directed the thinking I wanted uh, my audience to hear. It's like a, a symphony of essays. Uh, it means something to me. But this is just orchestra, not chorus and orchestra. Just orchestra. In a way, it's a, it, you mentioned Berlioz early on. It's it's a programmatic symphony. Yes, it is. Yeah. An aspect of your work that I wish I was familiar with that I haven't had the opportunity to see in here is you've written several operas, and you know that's an even bigger hurdle to to cross for a composer than getting yeah. it done by an orchestra. Yeah, I don't know whether to be embarrassed by that. If people say, "Oh, you've written four operas," it's like, oh, "No, not really." They're all educational projects. They, the longest one, takes 60, 60 minutes. I guess I have a purist attitude about opera, you know, because I, I loved going to the H, HD uh, 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 Met Operas, and uh, I, I love Grand Opera and all of that, though I never had a chance to uh, write an evening's length opera. I'm getting kind of old for that. That's a, opera. <laughs> opera is a long, hard slog. You get your librettist. The librettist works with the dramaturg. And then you have to get to work and write the piece. And then you have to score the piece. And then you must produce two scores, one for the soul singers and one for the orchestra, et cetera, et cetera. And then if you're lucky, you might get one performance. I think I'm having better luck with the idea of the concert aria. I've written two of them uh, over the past couple of years, thanks to Liz Player at the Chamber Players. Nobody know for baritone and string quartet. The New York Times called that one of the short operas, <laughs> good short operas of the country. I said, oh, that's news to me. And then of course, Tulsa, 1921. And my wife pointed out, because I was lamenting over not getting any operas. And she said, look, you get actual more performances with your concert arias and your orchestra and choral pieces than you do with an opera. So don't worry about opera. To me, opera is a young person's game. Generally, you don't start operas at the age of 80 unless you're Verdi and you have a long history of writing operas. So, or Jan Acek. Writing music, you know, in his 70s was when he really had his breakthrough. 
Well, I'm in my 80s. So, so I'm not, I'm going to have my breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> well, life expectancy is much better now than it was then. And, and you know, hopefully you'll, you know, you'll be around for many, yeah. many years and, you know, maybe, yeah. you know, have your fifth opera done. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, you know, people point out that, you know, I never initiated an opera project because it's too much work for too little chance to me anyway too much work for too little chance of getting performed and follow-up performances are rare etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean i remember copeland said he wasn't going to do another one and coriano said no way not again you know it's so uh I said, no, forget it I, I i love the great romantic operas and i love, of course mozart operas and stuff like that so let let, let them have that well, to bring this all full circle, you know, the very beginning of this conversation, you were talking about coming up at a time when there were people who almost destroyed music. Mm. And I'm thinking about this now in terms of how do we reach a wider audience with music? And obviously, that wider audience that doesn't go to symphony orchestras, that doesn't go to opera houses, that doesn't go to anything, they're listening to music. They're just not listening to this music. They're exactly. listening to other music. And maybe if they thought there was something there for them mm. in what happens in a symphony orchestra concert or what happens in an opera hall, rather than it being the domain, I think most people think of these things, they think, oh, that's the music of these old dead European composers. And then maybe if they think contemporary music, they think, oh, I don't want to hear that stuff. But if they knew there was music out there that was topical, that spoke to the issues of this moment, that might be something that they would want to hear. Well, we can always hope, if anything good came out of the pandemic, is that so many artistic groups have started to rethink their hopes and or their, their plans and also their whole program. Symphony orchestra directors and artistic administrators are thinking about more inclusion. Black composers, especially the young people, are being discovered and being programmed. This is a hopeful sign. It might be a passing sign. You never know. But let's see what happens. I, I think the young composers are responding to the whole world around them. The reaction to the George Floyd killing, all of that is having people rethink what should the arts be doing? What are the arts good for? Can the arts speak to our dilemmas and hold hope for our future? And this is very good. We'll see. Now, you know, when it comes to orchestras, especially, it seems they get reticent and they're going to go, we better go back to Bach and Brahms or Beethoven and, and we got to watch our dollar signs on the, as the bottom line. We can't just do social good. That's not our purpose, the social good. Our purpose is to put butts in the, in the seats and keep them coming. They'll come out if they see, oh, Beethoven's seventh. I love the seventh of the Beethoven. I want to go hear that. Then, okay, fine. But um, what about the Barber Violin Concerto? Oh, I think that's a gorgeous piece. What's about the, well, whatever orchestra works that Boulez did? I think I'll stay home for that one, thank you. And, you know, <laughs> the bottom line is, can you get people into the halls? Well, and I would contend that, you know, with like Beethoven's Seventh, 
I mean, there's a certain generation who know that, but younger people, they don't know Beethoven's seventh, um, <laughs> you know, Blaise's, you know, anything. You know what it is now? It's it's video game music. My last class I taught at Old Dominion where, before I retired was an orchestration class. I wanted them to hear the Rachmaninoff second because one of our faculty members was going to play it. I accidentally dropped the needle, you might say, on my CD at the first recording, which was on the CD, which was the Tchaikovsky first. Bump, 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 bump. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, guy. I'm sorry. I know you all know that one. I, I want you to hear this one. And they had never heard it. And I said, what? You never heard the Tchaikovsky verse piano control? <laughs> and and, and, and I, I said, oh, God, it is time for me to retire. <laughs> because I had never met anyone in my life who had never known that, that piece. And then I got a whole class sitting in front of me who had never heard that piece. So, you know, it goes in with what you were saying. The death of, of music education in the public schools um, helped lead. And also the kids don't need to because they've got their own music entirely. And if it's not something that's rap or dancing or video game music. And when I talk to young students now who want to be composers, I always include all, all the many options you can have as a composer. And you make a hell of a lot more money than you would as a concert composer. And, and, and I always include ringtones and video game music, et cetera, et cetera. I said, the guy who wrote the music for Game of Thrones is not probably a multimillionaire now. And, and all of that, and they're shaking the hands and say, yeah. So um, it's interesting uh, where music is gonna go. But I, I, you may remember, you know, 10, 10, 15, 20 years ago, they were saying the symphony orchestra is dead. I hope that's not the case because I love the symphony orchestra. I think it's a service. I once called music a service art. And that's probably because I grind, when I growing up as a chorister, I was performing service. I was at the church, my little ruffled collar and my hymn book and sing, and that was part of the service. And it's a ceremonial aspect to it and all of that. You take all of that out of listening to music and no wonder people are gonna stop coming to it. But um, I, I'm hoping it'll come back. This brings us to the end of this episode of Sound Lives. But before we say goodbye to Adolphus Hailstork, let's listen to a little bit more of his music. This is from Armageddon, featuring organist James Kosnick, timpanist Rob Cross, and the Eastern Virginia Brass Quintet from the CD Amazing Grace, the organ music of Adolphus Hailstork, released on Albany Records. I'd like to thank Unison Media, Bill Doggett Productions, Albany Records, and Noxos USA. New Music Box is brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. This program is funded in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York State Council on the Arts, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit newmusicusa.org to explore more stories and voices from our new music community.